0: Sermon text this week is Leviticus 4 verses 13 through 21. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which should not be done and are guilty when the sin which they have committed becomes known Then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin, and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering, Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. Right. Oh, Heavenly Father God, we do come to this this passage and we cry out to you, the one that has ordered all things the one that has given us this word, the one that meets with your, your saints on your holy day, the one that comes to instruct them. Father, we do cry out to you that you would help us as a congregation, as an assembly that has undoubtedly sinned. Father, we do come and help. pray that you would help us to understand these things, help us to apply them rightly. We pray that you would bless Mr. Horn as he expounds upon the text, That he would instruct us, that you would help us, that you would guide us, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would bless his words, that you would help us to understand how we should be repenting, how we should be walking in the ways that you have called us to. We do pray, O Lord, that you you would bless us to be more conformed, that you would wash us in the water of your word this day, we pray in Jesus' name.
1: as I said last week as we started studying the sin offering, that I think the sin offering is the picture of the sacrifice of Christ that allows us to enter into the Holy of Holies, that allows us to be reconciled to God the Father. For Jesus Christ is the way. He is the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. So I think that's the picture of it. And so the first section of the chapter deals with if an anointed priest sins unintentionally. And because of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, as it says in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That since you're a, a royal priesthood, since you're a, a group of people that are the designated, the anointed of the Lord, the sin offering, the first sin offering is that picture that it is through that priest offering that sacrifice that the blood of the bull, which is picturing the blood of Jesus Christ, is sprinkled at the base of the veil because it's through that. That sin offering that you can enter into the presence of God. But that passage in 1 Peter 2 talks about more than just being a priesthood. It talks about being a nation, being a special people. Something that I see as forgotten so often in the modern church where, where there is so much focus on an individual salvation is that he was not just the sin offering for those who believe. He was the sin offering for the church. He was the sin offering for the nation of God. He was a sin offering to create a people who were not a people that are now the people of God. It's very easy, since we personally do need to have faith, we do personally need to believe that it's easy to forget the corporate aspect of it. It's easy to forget that Jesus Christ died for his church. He didn't just die for individuals, he died for his body. He died for his, his, his nation. He died for his people. He died for the congregation and not just for individuals. And so, as we read this about he dying, or the sin offering for the congregation of Israel. Let's remember what he's talking about. Israel is the people of God, as it says in Romans 9, 6. It's those who truly have faith. It's what we just read from the Second London Baptist Confession. It's the invisible church. That's who he died for. And not just individuals. He did die for everyone who's saved. But he also died for his church. So as we should consider this passage, we should think about it in the context of the church. What does this mean for the church? There are examples in, in Scripture, at least, where, where there is a congregational repentance. At least in Judah, if not Israel, where there's a collective opening of their eyes. Like when they find the law in the temple at the time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8, 8-12. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. This is the picture of the sin offering. This is the picture where the congregation all of a sudden recognizes their sin, usually through the word of God. They recognize their sin, and collectively they say, we're going to stop. The sin offering is to remind us that recognizing our sin, that we can't turn away from it except that there was a sacrifice. That Jesus Christ was the sacrifice that allows us to enter into the Holy of Holies. That allows the whole congregation to repent, the whole congregation to see their sin, and turn to the living God. So with that, let's go verses 13 through 15. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord, in anything which should not be done, and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin, and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. So he says, now, and this is, again, throughout this chapter, he deals with four cases. First case was the anointed priest that we talked about last week. This case is the congregation of Israel. The next week, we'll talk about the ruler and the common people. And in the second case of the congregation sinning, (coughs) again, it's an unintentional sin, but it's, it's showing that there's a requirement for the body, for the whole congregation to have a sin offering and not just individual sin offerings. So now, after talking about the individual, God is going to have Moses talk about the whole congregation when the whole congregation is blind to their sin. That term, congregation, it comes from a word that means like a fixture like it's, it's established like it's firmly there God had appointed these people to be the, the people of God the physical people of God because he was going to reject them because what they had was not enough but so it's the congregation of Israel and again Israel means the prince of God it means those who prevail with God so Israel was those who were designated by God as his people. But obviously, as again, as I said, it says in Romans 9, 6, for not all of Israel are of Israel. It was always just a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Because Israel is also a term for Christ. In Hosea 11, 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. And then in Matthew 3.15, he quotes the same thing, saying it's about Christ. Israel is a name for Christ. Physical Israel, physical Jacob, they were just a picture for the church. So as we take this, this is a picture for the body of Christ. This is about the congregation of Israel. So when it sins unintentionally, So when the congregation is blind to their sin, and again, we see it multiple times in in Israel where they have collective repentance, times where Israel goes back to the law which they have rejected the ways of God. It happens in Hezekiah. It happens in Josiah. It happens in Nehemiah where there's this opening of their eyes and all of a sudden, they've been sinning unintentionally and they open their eyes and they see Wait, this is what God has commanded. But these things are also true for the church of God. In the general case, it's true in justification. Everybody that's part of the church of God, there's a point where God opens their eyes to their sin and they see that they have sinned against the Creator. They see that they have rejected the ways of God. And so the congregation is made up of people who sinned unintentionally, who sinned rebelling against God, not that they are that they like accidentally murdered somebody, but they murdered somebody saying there is no one to hold them account, and then God opens their eyes and they see that no, there is somebody who will hold them to account, and then they flee to Christ but it's also it happens at other times too, right? It happens at other times where where the congregation follows after false false ideas, false theology, where the church is led astray because the scriptures have been twisted. And that twisting becomes accepted as the right application. And so we should think of this in that way too, that this is is what happens to the church, that, that fads of theology go through the church that mislead the church. And Jesus Christ died to fix that. Because the church is not supposed to continue in its false beliefs. And so the thing is hidden. And that word translated hidden literally means veiled. And I think it's worth considering that how veiling is a particular type of hiding. When you veil something, you know its existence. When you hide something, in the general case, you may not even know it exists anymore. But when you veil something, the idea of veiling it is, you know it's there, you're just ignoring it. Or you know it's there, but you can't have access to see it. And so this is how the false doctrine takes over in a church. is its veil. It's not just completely hidden. God has given His Word, but people don't look into His Word to see it. It's not that people don't know the existence of the doctrine. It's that it's more that they... That they know it's there, but they don't look at the details of it. They know eschatology is there, but they don't bother to read the Bible to see what the Bible says about eschatology. They know that that faith is important, but they don't know that faith without works is dead. Or they know faith is important, but they think that somehow your works added to your faith are what are required to be saved. All the doctrines that have caused so much damage to the church, they're veiled, they're not hidden. They aren't seen for what they are. They aren't seen in clarity. Those are the really dangerous doctrines. It's when the, the information's there, when the, the truth is there, when knowledge of the doctrine's there, but instead of finding out what God really said, people just say, oh yeah, this is, this is what everybody else says God said, so it must be enough. But just like Israel... When it had times of national repentance, it was usually associated with reading the law of God and reading the word of God and saying all of a sudden, wait a second, God didn't say that he'll accept whatever sacrifice we want, even if we sacrifice our children in the valley of Hinnom. But God only accepts the sacrifices that he commands. It comes about by reading the word of God. So it's veiled because people won't read the word. Now it says in 2 Corinthians 3 why that is, why people won't read the Word. They won't read the Word because they don't want to see who Christ is. And so they veil truth. But the church is supposed to desire to see who Christ is. So often the, the church sins unintentionally because they don't do the work that is their that produces the sin. But it's this idea that the thing is hidden, it's veiled from the eyes of the assembly. The whole assembly goes along with the air. And this is important to recognize. Wicked men always come in. There's always people that are trying to lead the flock of God astray. There's people that are always trying to veil truth. That's what everybody should expect in the church. That's what it says in 2 Peter 2. Everybody should always expect. That's what it says in Acts 20 when Paul's speaking to the church at Ephesus. And he said, Wolves will come in, from among, come in among you, some rising from your own selves. This is the picture. There will always be people that are trying to veil the truth from the church. And the church has a duty to try to, to not just kind of know, I know that's out there, but I'm not going to look at it, but actually to look at it. Actually to see what it actually says. And the congregation won't look at the word of God. The whole congregation can have truth hidden from its eyes. Through disobedience, because it is their sin, they have the responsibility to know. But it can be, at the same time, sincerely trying to serve God in your partial blindness. then it says, and they have done something. Notice it's very vague here. They've done something. Or another way to put it is it applies very broadly. But it's important to understand as well that this is not just about a wrong understanding. This is that wrong understanding really affects the way that you do things. God gives us doctrine not for the sake of knowing but for the sake of doing. God tells truths to his people so that they can do them. So when the congregation is blind in its understanding, it will always affect its behavior. We shouldn't think that you can have false doctrine and that somehow won't change what you're doing before God. God judges by what you're doing because the doctrine is what drives what you do. So when they've done something against any of the commandments of the Lord, with justification, with initial salvation, the picture is that one is blinded to their responsibility to their Creator. It doesn't matter what commandment of God they broke. They were lawless. And if you break any one of the commandments, as it says in the New Testament, you're guilty of all of them. And so that's the initial veiling of the truth of God. It's initially you're blinded to the truth that you have to answer to your Creator. He is the one that created you. He is the one that you have an obligation to. And the church was always... At some point in time, every part of the church was blinded to that, and God opens their eyes. But after justification, in terms of sanctification, when we think of the church body, there's the congregation is repenting, and it needs to be more than to go, we got this doctrine wrong. It needs to be that we have broken the commandments of God. That it, the practice, the, the wrong doctrine caused us to do things that were very wrong for instance when the church embraced dispensational eschatology which is so widely embraced it really changes practices and god judges for the practice i don't think it's as prevalent now but 30 years ago it was pretty prevalent for churches to tell people they shouldn't have children they push vasectomies on people Because they're saying things are going to get worse and worse. They're going to get worse and worse. So you shouldn't bring children into this world. You should just witness. You should just tell people. You should evangelize. Because Jesus Christ is going to come back. And so the false doctrine produced evil transgressions of the commandments of God. Because God commanded be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God gave clear commandments, but yet false doctrines cause transgressions of the law. So we shouldn't just think, oh, you think these things, and that they don't have real effects in what you do. Because belief drives behavior. And so when we think of false doctrines going out in the church, we shouldn't just go, oh, that doesn't mean that it won't affect the behavior of the church. It absolutely affects the behavior of the church. And so God's saying he's not, he doesn't need to judge the doctrine. He judges the behavior. They've done something against the commandments of the Lord. In anything that should not be done. And again, it's not talking about ceremonial guilt. It's not talking about being ceremonia, ceremonially unclean like a leopard. This is talking about transgressions against the moral law of God. And the specific focus is on the sins of commission, on doing what you ought not to have done. So when the congregation believes in something that's false, it practices things that are evil and they stand guilty before God. The congregation stands guilty before the Holy God as being justifiably being under his wrath and it's being really clear here, they don't know. They they've blinded themselves because of their sin. They blinded themselves because of their false beliefs. They blinded themselves to a truth. And God still says, you're guilty. You know, most Western cult- cultures are very clear. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. This is where that doctrine comes from. They stand guilty, even though they don't know, even though they don't understand. We are not made innocent by ignorance. That's really important to recognize. We are not made innocent by ignorance. You're still guilty. Ignorance is no excuse. So when the sin which they have committed becomes known, they can't deal with it until they know about it. But once they know about it, now they're compounding their guilt. Now they were guilty before, but now because they don't, if they don't do anything about it, if they don't deal with it with God, then they stand in greater guilt. Having knowledge increases your guilt. It doesn't mean you're not guilty if you don't have knowledge because you still have responsibility. God has still given you his word. He has given you everything that you need to be thoroughly equipped for every good work so you can't turn around and say, well, I didn't know. The answer is you're guilty anyway because you had the opportunity to know But he who knows what is right and does not do it, to him it is sin. It is greater responsibility when you are shown what your sin is. So when the sin that they have committed becomes known, then they, then the assembly has to offer the sin offering. The other offerings were described. It was always about an individual. And we know from from Exodus that there's times where there were Sins, or there were offerings for the congregation when, when Aaron was, was consecrated. But in Leviticus, in going through this, this is all when anybody wants to give a burnt offering, when it was all individual. And now all of a sudden we get the picture of a corporate offering. This offering is offered by the congregation, probably purchased by the congregation, so that it wouldn't be one person making the offering. So they give a offer a young bull for the sin, so this is the priest had to give a bull for a young bull for the offering, and the congregation has to give the same offering a young bull for the sin and those three words translated young bull really mean a basically a son of cattle and his strength so this isn't after the bull becomes old and weary, and this isn't when it is a calf this is when it's It's full strength. This is a picture of Christ being the sin offering at the age of 33 in his strength and in his vigor. He brings it before the door of the tabernacle of meeting, or before the tabernacle of meeting. So again, the the pattern is the same as with the priest. The animal was to be killed before the presence of God. Think about this, like the the picture that this matches is like the picture in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ was clearly being offered as a sacrifice in the presence of God. When he goes and prays and says, God, let this cup pass, but not thy will, but not my will, but your will be done. The sacrifice was made in the presence of God. The sacrifice of Christ was made to appease the wrath of God. Verses 15 through 18. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar, burn offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So it starts with the elders of the congregation, and again, this is somewhat vague, who are the all, the elders, and some say that this is, that you have twelve, you know, one of each of the leaders of the tribes come and lay hands on the bowl. others say that it's representative of the Sanhedrin, the 70 that, that continued until the time of Christ, but that the first time we hear about them is when they go up on Mount Sinai with Moses. But it doesn't say, which means that it's not the important part. I think the important part is that these are the people that the people, the congregation recognized as their leaders. They were the accepted leaders of the people. They were the people that the the congregation recognized that these are the ones that that are are, are representatives because the congregation sin and everyone. You know, God could have set it up that everyone would put their hands on the bowl, but that would make it turn back to a picture of individual. But there's also corporate sin. There's also, there, Jesus Christ died for His church and not just for each individual. So in this case, the elders are the ones that are representing the congregation. It's not the whole congregation individually. Or it would look like the sacrifice was just for individuals. It's not. It's for the congregation itself. Representatives of them repented for the whole people. Now, if you read the prayer in Daniel 9... Daniel goes, oh, it's time. Jeremiah said that we would be in captivity for 70 years. We've been in captivity for 70 years. It's time to to repent. And so he cries out and prays for all the people. And he was clearly the leader of Israel at the time, the leader of the Jews. That's the picture. There's there's a place where the, the leaders can come and cry out to God for repentance for the congregation and confess to God for repentance for the congregation. And it's real because they're really representing the people. So even though it wasn't his sin in particular, he could repent for the congregation. And that's the picture here. The elders come up. And they lay their hands. And again, it's that picture of laying on of hands. When you see the picture of laying on of hands, it's transferring responsibility. As representatives of the congregation, they're transferring the responsibility that they have received by having hands laid on them to be elders. And they're transferring, because they have that responsibility, they're able to transfer the responsibility for the sin from the the congregation To the bowl. And so they put their hands on the head of the bowl. Before the Lord. They physically laid their hands. But more importantly it was before the Lord. They didn't do it by their strength. It was because God looked at it and accepted it. Because God had commanded them to do this. Is why it's acceptable and why it's done before the Lord. The Lord that they're saying take this offering and take it as an acceptable sin offering to forgive the sins, to make atonement for the sins of the congregation so that that bull would die in place of the whole congregation for the unintentional sin that they were guilty of doing. So then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. So just as transferring the responsibility had to be before the Lord, the slaughter of the bull had to be before the Lord as well. People like making sacrifices out of worldly sorrow. And we'll talk about this next week. They, people do this. this, is, this is, there's these whole systems like the Roman Catholic system of confession where you go in and confess the sin and then you do these things because doing these things makes you feel like you've been cleansed. Because you're not doing it before God, you're doing it before yourself. But the idea of this is the sacrifice had to be to God because the sin was against God. And the only one that could make that sacrifice was Jesus Christ. Very easy to do sacrifices out of worldly sorrow that you're doing for yourself. But for your sins to be forgiven, they need to be done before God. So in this case, it's done... You know, in other cases, it was explicit who was to kill the animal. But in this case, it's just whoever they choose to kill it. Because just like whoever gave it, it wasn't about that person. Whoever kills it, it's not about that person. The congregation is the one that's killing it. The church of Jesus Christ is the one that killed Christ. Because of our sin, he had to die. And yes, we can look at Judas and we can see that he's the one that went to the Sanhedrin. We can look at Caiaphas or Ananias. We can look at the high priest that led him. We can look to Pilate. We can look to all these individuals that killed Christ. But it wasn't the individuals that did. It's the whole congregation that did when they yelled, crucify him. The detail of who did it didn't matter. Christ had to die so that a people could be saved. So then the anointed priest. In the, the first part of the chapter, it was it used the term anointed priest. And when you read commentaries, a lot of them say it's just the high priest. I have trouble with that. Because there's a term for high priest and it's not used. And we know from the beginning Aaron's sons were anointed too. And all priests were anointed. So it seems to me that this is if you're a priest that you have to do the first offering. But here where it's for the congregation this is where they usually make their argument as well with the congregation. Obviously, it would be the high priest that, that offered the sacrifice. So therefore, it must be talking about the anointed in the first part of the chapter. But I don't think that's, that's clearly not required by the text. So it's somebody who has been anointed, somebody that has been, been consecrated into the priesthood. They're the ones that would have to, to take some of the bull's blood. And remember the elders of the congregation, they weren't allowed in. The only people that were allowed in were the sons of Aaron. And so the ones that could go in and sprinkle the blood into the holy place was the son of Aaron. So they'd bring some of that bull's blood, and again, like with most of the other large animals that they killed, something other than a bird. They would catch the 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 blood in a in a in a basin that was made for those purposes that were associated with the altar burnt offering. So they would catch that blood and they would bring some of that blood into the tabernacle of meeting. The animal had been killed outside the door of the tabernacle and some of that blood's carried into the tabernacle. And then the priest shall dip his finger again, just like with when the anointed priest was sacrificing it for himself, this is a personal, this is not, you don't take an instrument, you don't take like hyssop and use it to, to sprinkle the blood. You're actually taking your hands and you're dipping it into the blood. It's a picture of how personal Christ's sacrifice has to be to each one of us. Now, personal Christ's sacrifice has to be to the congregation. It's not just close to us individually, but it's a personal sacrifice. As a congregation, the blood was on the hand of the priest. We have to recognize that when we sin as a congregation, the blood is on our hands. We personally bear the guilt but the blood of Jesus Christ can wash it clean. The blood of Jesus Christ can cause it to be forgiven. So the priest dips his finger into the blood, and only through the shedding of blood can there be remission of sin. So the blood had to be brought before the Lord for the sin to be forgiven. Christ was sacrificed and His blood was shed so that His congregation, His church, His nation, His people, all these terms that are used, so all of them could be reconciled to the Father. In the Garden of Eden, they were driven out. And this is how they get back in. This is how they get back into the presence of God. This is how they get back in to the holy place and this is how they get back in and have the promise that they will be be able to enter into the holy of holies where God dwells. So the blood had to be brought before the Lord and sprinkled seven times before the Lord to show the completeness of the forgiveness it's not faith plus works. It's not, it's not that somehow we satisfy the wrath of God. The wrath of God is satisfied in Christ. It's just having the wrath of God satisfied in Christ means that we now live for Christ instead of for ourselves. So it's sprinkled seven times. It's complete. Just as Christ said on the, on the, on the cross, it is finished. That's the picture of the sprinkling of the blood before the altar, or before the veil, excuse me. Because it's done in front of the veil, the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place. It's sprinkled seven times there. Not to say that sin is put away entirely, but it's the promise that we will enter into the Holy of Holies, that the sin offering has made it such that we can have eternal life in the presence of God. And the promise that when we are in the presence of God, all our sin will be removed. We will no longer need to be veiled from God. Because we will be fit to be in His presence. Because corruption will have put on incorruption. So he takes out with some of the blood. And they, they take some of the blood also. The blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he puts it on the horn of the altar. This is the altar of incense, the golden altar that is immediately before the veil. This is a picture. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ that the congregation can gather and pray. When we pray Wednesday night as gathered together, when I stand up here and pray on Sunday morning, this is how we have the ability to do this. This is why we have the right to do this as a congregation. We can do this because Christ did not just come and anoint the altar with His blood for individuals, for priests to come. He came so that the whole congregation could pray to Him. And so when we think about congregational prayer, it's this picture that Jesus Christ was the sin offering, and He comes in and that blood is used to anoint the altar for the congregation to be able to pray. And not just individuals. And again, this is before the Lord. The idea is that these things weren't done to be seen by men. They were done behind the door of the tabernacle. It was screened off. It's called the screen of the tabernacle too. It was screened off so that you couldn't see it. Because this isn't about man seeing it. It's about God seeing it. It's anointed on that altar of incense that's immediately next to the veil. That covers the holy of holies it's as close as you can get to being inside and that's what was anointed with the blood of Christ so that we can offer up prayers that are pleasing to him again that's in the tabernacle meeting tabernacle of meeting means that place that's appointed to meet God, this is where you meet God it's through that sin offering through that blood that's sprinkled at the veil. It's through Christ that the sin offering is a picture of. Then he'll pour out the remaining blood. So, this is also the priest's acting. He's, he's, he's the one that's responsible for the blood. He does the sprinkling and the anointing, which is a picture of what he does for those who are saved. But then he pours out the rest at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Because either the blood of Jesus Christ brings you into the presence of the Father or it increases your judgment. Remember the burnt offering. When you offer the burnt offering, you sprinkle the blood around the altar as this picture that the blood is separating you from the altar. This isn't that. This is the blood being poured out. This is the testimony of the guilt of the sacrifice. The guilt of the sacrifice is on those who are not in the Holy of Holies the ones that aren't priests, the ones that aren't part of the true congregation, the invisible church, the rest that just increases their judgment when the blood is poured out. Verses 19 through 21. He shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it, so the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. So he'll take all the fat from it. We've talked about this multiple times about the fat that's between the organs, the fat that's around the organs. And just as it was true for the individual priests, it's true for the congregation. A picture of taking all the fat from the inward parts of the animal. This is a throughout it, it's a picture of the the things that accrue because of sin, these things that from a worldly perspective are so good and useful. The things where you go, Well, I have to do this because otherwise what will happen? That is used as an excuse to violate God's law so frequently. The picture of this is that has to be burned up. The individual has to burn it up and the congregation has to burn it up. Those things that are the product of sin, too often the church judges based on works and says this is good what came out of this doctrine so we're going to keep doing it. And God says those things have to be burned up because it has to be a sacrifice to God. It has to be according to what He said is the right thing to do. God even says in Deuteronomy, I think it's 13, that he causes sinful things to produce like a false prophet, to give true prophecies, so that people see, do they want to follow God or do they want to follow the things of the world? And that's the same thing here. This is the same picture, the church, the congregation, they have to be willing to to sacrifice and burn up those things that they see as, as good products of sin instead of just saying, well, this was good. God does that to test, to test to see if what you're doing is just seeing if you can find the things you want in the world or if, he's, or if you're truly seeking Him. So you take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. It's burned on the altar, burnt offering. And again, it would be very visible. Like on a grill, when you have when you have fat on the grill and it's a hot grill, all of a sudden it flames up. That's what, that's what the altar, burnt offering would look like. It would be very visible. A visible show of flames. It should be visible when the church repents and destroys the fruit of sin. Now there's an example of this in Acts 19, 18 and 19. And many who believed... Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That's the picture of offering the fat, the burnt offering. They see that they were sinning. They looked at all this stuff, and they went, look, this is valuable. And they went, we need to burn it up to God. The fact that it's worth 50,000 pieces of shekel, which is a lot of money, it's 50,000 man days of work, basically. And they said, we just need to burn it up on the altar. We need to burn it up. We can't, we can't accept these things that have value because they're from sin. That's the picture of burning up the fat on the altar. So then he shall do with the bull as he did with the, the bull. And this is talking about the bull for the, the anointed priest's offering. That they're supposed to treat the two as the same. So he's making a very clear connection between the bull that was the bull that was offered by the anointed priest and the bull that's offered by the congregation. And I think that's pretty obvious why the two are connected together. Jesus Christ was the sin offering for everyone who believes. But he's also the sin offering for the church of Jesus Christ. In in the sacrificial system, they couldn't have the one bull be both and still have the picture of being the congregation and the individual. But these are both a picture of Christ and what Christ did. He was the sin offering so that each individual that will ever believe, each individual that was elected before the foundation of the world, that he would be saved, but he also came to save the church. It's one offering with two different applications that are the same application, because the individuals that are saved are the church. But we're supposed to think about it in both ways. Christ came to save the church, and Christ came to save those who would believe. So it's a sin offering. It's an offering that causes the sin to be forgiven. Christ was the sin offering that causes your sins to be forgiven if you put your faith and trust in Him. And he was a sin offering that caused the church, his bride, his body, to be purified and cleansed so that it would be in the presence of God the Father and God the Son for all eternity. So thus he shall do the same with it. They're to be treated the same. Physically, they're two different pictures, but but it's connecting the two substances together. That Christ, Christ took on flesh and was crucified. For each individual and for the church. So the priest shall make atonement for them. This was the work that the priest was to do. To cause them to be reconciled to God. To cause them to be fit to be called the people of God again. To make it so they had access to God through prayer. And the promise of eternal life. This is what Christ did. This is what we're supposed to continue to do. As priests of God. Is to declare these things. To cause people to see their sin. To cause them to work with them to repent. To cause them to put their sins on Christ. So that they can come into the Holy of Holies. But the priest would do this. All this offering. The sprinkling of the blood. The putting it on the altar. So that the congregation's sins would be forgiven. They had this long procedure that they were supposed to do. They would do it for the individual. They would do it at the congregation. Our process is much simpler. Since Christ was already the perfect sin offering. It says in 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We just need to confess our sins to God. And we'll be forgiven if we believe in God. So then he shall carry the bull. This would be the priest. Carries the bull. that was in the midst of the congregation when they sac- sacrificed it and they would carry it out from the midst of the people. And just like Christ, the picture of Christ after the, after the trial, after, the, after he faces Caiaphas and Ananias and after he faces, after he faces Pilate after he faces Herod, after he faces all these people, he's actually put to death outside the camp. He's carried outside the camp, just as we're supposed to be carried outside the camp by God, through sanctification. the, The sin offering that is Christ has to be burned outside the camp it says in hebrews 13 12 and 13 therefore jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach we're to join christ outside the camp this is what it looks like to be saved and burn it it was burned we're not burned we become a living sacrifice But we're supposed to be separated from the world just like Christ was. But we're then supposed to be a living sacrifice to the world by loving our enemies. Christ was a sacrifice for his congregation, so we're supposed to go and be a sacrifice. And it does it as he burned the first bowl. Again, it's making the connection between that sacrifice for the anointed priest and the sacrifice of the congregation, they're treated the same, they're burned the same, they're taken outside the camp the same, because they're both picturing the same sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. He's the sin offering that justifies us. He's the sin offering that causes his congregation to be saved. He's the sin offering that causes individuals to be saved. The two sacrifices both pointing to the same reality of Christ's sacrifice. So it is a sin offering for the assembly. The congregation needs to be forgiven for its blind sin, just like individuals do. Let me give you some applications. The first thing that we should consider is just what a great blessing it is when God shows his people that they have it wrong. It can be really hard. It can be embarrassing. It can be all kinds of things. But it's important for the church to recognize. Salvation comes to the people of God because they recognize that their sin, that they didn't think was sin, is really sin. That's how salvation works. But it doesn't just happen initially. It continues to happen. And so it's really important for us to recognize that, that it is a great blessing when God opens their eyes, when they opens our congregation's eyes to something that they thought was fine, that they then realize, no, this is actually sin. That's a great com- a great blessing. You know, I was thinking this week about in the you know the nineteen nineties. Suddenly a large denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, with fifteen million dollars, or fifteen million people, that they claim to have as their membership all of a sudden they turn around and they find the Word of God. We look at them as a conservative denomination. In the 70s and the 80s, they weren't a conservative denomination. They completely rejected the Word of God. And then all of a sudden, they found the Word of God and they started reading the Word of God. And now they're known, even though not very faithfully, they're known as the most conservative mainstream denomination. And that comes from reading the Word of God. Think of what the blessing it was. It was a tremendous blessing that all of a sudden, the Baptist faith and message says the word of God is sufficient. The whole convention repented because it was, in a lot of the churches in it did not repent. But the the assembly of them together said the word of God, the word of God is where we have to find where God is, have to find who God is. And from that, all of a sudden, you get a a movement of Calvinism because if people read the word of God, all of a sudden they find out God is a lot different than had been taught before. And all of a sudden there's a great blessing because all of a sudden there's a huge number of people that go, wait a second, I can't save myself. It's a real blessing when, when congregations repent, when assemblies repent. all of a sudden things that are that are blind and are dark all of a sudden become lit and so it's really important to understand that that it is a tremendous blessing when God causes an assembly a congregation to see their unintentional sin so that they can repent of it and turn from it you know it feels to me that eschatol eschatology is going the same path and when we see these things we should rejoice because that's what real revival is about there was that revival in Asbury that everybody was talking about that probably will come to nothing because they didn't desire doctrine they didn't desire truth what really happens when God when God revives a people when he revives a congregation is he opens their eyes to their sin so that they stop that sin, and they receive the blessings of having stopped that sin. So we should we should rejoice when we see these. We should we should expect to see it though, because this is what God does. This is what He did. He He came to die to cleanse a people to produce a holy people. As we proceed in Nigeria, we should we should recognize that God has done this in the past, and He will do it again in the future. And that doesn't mean that He'll do it using us in Nigeria, but we shouldn't sit back and go, oh, what an amazing thing. I mean, in a sense, it is an amazing thing that God has done over and over and over again. And it is a miracle. But we should have an expectation that God will open the eyes of His blind congregation because that's why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. Is so that unintentional sin, the blindness of sin, the things that were veiled, that were hidden, can be become known. And so we should have it, you know, again, not expecting it in one sense, but we should not at all be surprised if it comes, because that's why Jesus Christ became a sin offering, so that people could turn from their unintentional sin at a communal level. Another application we should ask ourselves the question, how do we work towards this? How do we work towards bringing the church, at least in the region where we are, to be bolder to declare the significance of truth, to be bolder to remove the veil so that things aren't hidden? In Nigeria, they have a whole system of Khan, Council of Nigeria, or Church, church Association of Nigeria, And all they do is work with each other to hide the truth, to veil the reality of who God is. But how often do we do the same thing? Where somebody says they're a Christian and you don't push them on, what what do you actually believe? And that's how the truth gets veiled. Because we allow people to think that salvation is something different than what the Bible says that it is. Because the Bible makes it clear how people are saved. And so often it's, it's easy to sit back and just kind of go, Oh yeah, I, I want to have that conversation. Isn't that wonderful that you're a Christian? Instead of saying, what, is it, what do you mean by that? Because wide is the path that leads to destruction. And if we want the congregation to repent, if we want congregations around us to repent... You have to point out the truth. You have to be willing to say the things that are painful to say, that people don't want to hear, that disrupt relationships. But that's how they receive the blessing of being able to turn from their unintentional sin, turn from those things that are hidden from them, is that the priests of God, the people of God, they speak and they show the truth. and we should make sure that we don't do it, another application, the protection against the church sinning unintentionally is that the people in the congregation read the word of God. When you look at national repentance for Israel, it's almost always somebody going back and saying, so what did God say again? What did God say about offerings? What did God say in his law? And we should recognize for a congregation to not sin unintentionally, hopefully I had the right number of, negatives there for a, a congregation to prevent sins that are sins of ignorance because they don't know what god commands what's required for that is not just the elder to read the word of god it's for the people to read the word of god Repentance for churches for their errors have the same solution. Going back as Israel did, go back to the Word of God. Read what it says. When just the leaders read the Word of God, the things that the leaders are confused by, the thing that the leaders don't understand, the congregation gets trapped in those errors. They follow the errors of their leader. It's when the congregation reads the Word of God that there can be real repentance, real correction in the church where somebody is leading them astray. And again, like I said at the beginning, God promises there'll be false prophets. He promises that there'll be people that come in and say, I'll read the word of God for you. You don't need to read it for yourself. The way to make sure that the church, the congregation doesn't have unintentional sin is for the people in the congregation to be reading the word of God. Right? Right? That's a very brief description of the Reformation. In the Reformation, everybody said, the Pope read it, who else needs to know it? And then Luther comes along and says, the people need to read it. They need to know it. And all of a sudden, the view of God in the world completely changes. Because that unintentional sin, that thing that was blinded, that thing that was veiled, the veil was removed by reading the word of God. That's how you continue to have reformation. It's not by just the leaders reading the word of God. It's by the people reading the word of God. Another application. Judgment comes when we don't care to see the world the way God created it and declared it to be. One of the reasons that we have unintentional sin is we want the veil. We don't want to see things as they are. And so often it's done in the the name of saying that this is what God said is good. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 5:18 through 21. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope that say let him speed and make and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the holy one of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Right there saying the ones that are drawing iniquity with cords of vanity, the ones that are bringing sin along, they're drawing it in, they frequently say, may God speed in what He's doing, may God hasten His work, may the Holy Spirit move. They did it at the time of Israel. And then God says, woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. They claim they were following God. They claim that they were following Christ, but yet they were calling evil good. It really comes down to looking at the world wrongly. This is what unintentional sin looks like. You call bitter sweet. You call darkness light. And there's always pastors that will be going, because they're drawing iniquity with cords of vanity, there will always be pastors that are going, you think that's dark? No, 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 that's what light is. And people go, oh, that's light. It's only light if it matches the word of God. And let's make sure we understand how this applies to us. It's really easy to look at a church that are promoting or approving of homosexuality and go, how can they say that? God says it's evil. But that's on the same spectrum of saying that any commandment of God is not good. Anything that God says to do when we go, Oh, yeah, I know it kind of says to do that. Pray without ceasing, but, oh, you know, who can pray without ceasing? That's calling evil good evil. As much as a church that promotes homosexuality is calling good evil. We need to be really careful not to be sinning unintentionally by calling good evil, calling darkness light, calling light darkness. Woe to those who want to twist their perception of the world to meet their sin. It's easy to look around at churches that embrace homosexuality. It's easy to look around at our country... Where the whole gender confusion movement, where you pretend like a boy can think he's a or can can actually be a girl in a boy's body or vice versa, these things that are categorically foolish. this is that same sin of calling darkness light. And we should just be very careful and ask ourselves where we do the same thing, not in the same degree, but the degree doesn't mean that we don't do it. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good, that call bitter sweet and sweet bitter, that call light darkness and darkness light. Let's make sure we don't have unintentional sin in our congregation. And the church is to put away the pleasures of sin. There are certain pleasures of sin that are particular to congregations, to places where people are gathered. For instance, maybe you think you're the special people of God that you know more than other people do, that you're the, you're the pure church. That's a pleasure of sin. That's pride. Maybe you make entertainment the focus of the church service rather than God, that you play the music that people want rather than the things that are pleasing to God. You sing the words that people want to hear. I I I I I like so many modern hymns are they're all about I rather than about God but there's a lot of churches that do that and they're 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 making it about entertainment the church has to put away the pleasures of sin or how about showing off you know you go places they speak in tongue they talk about the manifestations of the spirit they do healings they do all these shows that have nothing to do with God, nothing to do with His holiness. But people like Him is why they do it. The church has to be really careful to destroy the things that are pleasurable about sin. Because otherwise, you get blinded by the sin. The sin of the congregation so often is tied to pride. And the sin offering of God is about that Jesus Christ was sent is about you have no place for pride. We need to make sure we're burning up our pride as a congregation. The church also has to put away the things that are a result of sin. And they can have some real good. For instance, the example that I use is Sunday school. You know, the church, it's very clear from Scripture. The church is to be about the business of building up the members of the church to do the work of the ministry. That's what it says in Ephesians. But instead of of equipping parents to teach their children, believing parents, they say, we'll just teach the children. So then the church gets Sunday school to train the children in the things of God. But when you start to say, wait a second, the church needs to do it to do what the Bible has commanded. Almost every time that I've said that and I get a lot of pushback, I almost always get the pushback for the same reason. They go, but my son was saved in Sunday school. They aren't willing to see things as they are and see what God wants because they see good things that come out of it, which is like the fat of the offering. And they go, we can't make this sacrifice because we want the good fat. And it's not that it's bad. The fact that their child was saved in Sunday school, that's a wonderful thing. But think about how many children were lied to about being saved in Sunday school. So they're inoculated against the gospel because they think they're fine with God even though they don't know who God really is. The church has to be willing to put those things away and not say, but I see the fat, I see the good things from it, so I'm going to continue in it. Instead, the church needs to burn it up, put it away. The fruits of things that are not what God commanded, even if they're good, they're to be put away. We're not allowed to keep sin because we like the usefulness of the fruit. In the last application, Jesus Christ died, not just for individuals, but for His church. Ephesians 5:25 through27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having, a, having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. God became a sin offering to present to himself a holy bride, to present to himself a clean bride, one without spot or wrinkle and we're supposed to be participating in this not just saving and sanctifying sinners but but cleansing the church of Jesus Christ we're supposed to be working to open the eyes of Jesus of the church of Jesus Christ to our sin because Christ is became a sin offering for the church and that also Very clearly goes, what's your attitude towards the church? In the modern America, everybody wants to teach in churches about the salvation is about their relationship with God. Christ died for the church as much as he died for you or me. Christ died for the church. So if you don't love the church, you don't really care about Christ because he died for the church and not just for you. And too many people want to make their 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 salvation individual. But Christ was, yes, he was a sin offering for individuals. But he was a sin offering for the church. Because he loved his body. He loved his church. He loved the nation that he was establishing. He loved the people he was establishing. And so we have an obligation to do the same. Let me close this in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you as we go through these offerings and wrestle with the pictures that you have for us. We pray that you get them right, that we get them right, that we understand them. Lord, we thank you that you have given us so much more revelation in the New Testament, so much more through after the Pentateuch so that we can look back at these things and we can understand the pictures. Lord, we do pray that you cause us to be a people who desire to see our sin as a congregation, as individuals, desire to see our sins so that you will forgive us our sin and cleanse us of our unrighteousness so that we will bring glory and honor to your name. Lord, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for this word. We pray that your word applies to our hearts. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.